I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Melissa Tuckey from upstate New York. In fact, she's just been named Tompkins County Poet Laureate. And she is a co-founder, this is a very cool credential, of a wonderful organization known as Split This Rock. It's a national organization devoted to, they say, calling poets to the center of public life. And it's a organization that gets together twice a year, a conference of workshops and readings and discussions. And it's about poetry and social issues. It's a fabulous thing. If you don't know about it, find out more about it and uh, think about going sometime. Happens every other year. She is the author of a book of poems called Tenuous Chapel. And she just edited a book that's just been published by U of Georgia Press called Ghost Fishing an eco-justice poetry anthology. And I'm going to start there, Melissa, because uh, ghost fishing is a really interesting term, and I have not run into it before. So what is that about? So ghost fishing is a term that's uh, a real term that refers to the fishing equipment that gets left out in the ocean. Um, and inadvertently continues to capture and kill fish and other living creatures. Um, and for the book, the um, ghost fishing anthology is not a book about fishing, but it is a book about unintended consequences of uh, the many ways we live and things we do. And um, most especially of uh, systemic, um, oppressions and how they impact the environment. And it's the same also with eco-justice. Uh, um, there, you know, there's ecological writing and environmental writing and nature writing and eco-justice gives that a special little slant too, right? Right, so this is, the, this uh, eco-justice is uh, eco-poetry that's centered in social justice. So looking at our relationship to nature and the environment um, from the point of view of how do systemic injustices impact that relationship. So, um, you know, looking at the systems that, that underlie uh, all of this. Um, it's, asks us to consider when we're reading an eco poetry and we're thinking about where we live. It's, it, it's pushing back against the old romantic notions of nature as a wilderness where we go to to rest and recreate um, and asking us to think of it in terms of what environmental justice activists refer to as nature as the place we work, pray, play, um, and pray, play, pray, work, and live. <laughs> Sorry, there's so, a nice so, right there. So it's um, a much more uh, holistic view of nature, or inclusive, I guess. Inclusive. Conceptually inclusive. It's it's not um, bifurcated. It's uh, we are part of nature. Uh, we live in nature. All of this is nature. Um, we you know we're connected to nature. And um, all of our actions have consequences in the natural world as well. Um, and it also asks us to think about our history, 
and rethink some of the mythology that comes to us through poetry, um, where we have, you know, um, and not to throw any of it out, but, you know, a lot of, um, you know, white poets talking about the wilderness and nature, mostly male poets um, and poets with privilege, going all the way back to the romantic mm -hmm. uh, nature or movements um, to consider, you know, working class people, women, people of color, um, and uh, indigenous people, you know, when we talk about the wilderness to think about who was already there in the wilderness, it wasn't an empty forest. Um, and uh, that information, that reconsidering uh, of these myths is really urgent now, as we think about climate change and how we got here, um, because we need to, uh, see the people who are living in these places. We need to recognize their concerns. They're on the front lines mm -hmm. of the uh, environmental movement. Well, that's, this, is, this is just great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this anthology has, has uh, you got, it's a big book. Yeah, it is. Um, it is a big book. Um, it's the first collection of eco-justice poetry. So, um, and putting this together, it took me six years. Um, I, you know, I had to think about, well, what poems need to be included in an anthology like that? And I mean, I think uh, a lot of poems, if you think about the connection between social justice and the environment, that's almost everything, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I tried to focus it around key social justice issues where the two connect and, um, as, and to think of it as a conversation. So a conversation around topics such as um, uh, connection to the land, possession and dispossession, um, our food, uh, connections between war and the environment, um, our relationship to the animal and uh, other living creatures, um, resource extraction, um, eco-disaster, um, and, uh, and so on. And there's also an international section because I think if we talk about uh, environmental justice, we have to also see the international connections. Yeah. You know, our food, our oil, our air, we yeah. share our water, everything connects, right? And so. Um, uh, well, this is such that. a big issue. I mean, there's, there's so much. Right. It's, it's, it's just incredible. It had to be a big book. Yeah, and you know, it's a it's a starting conversation. I mean, I I personally believe this is how we should think of eco poetry. Yeah. You know, if our eco poetry is not connecting to climate change and disaster, if we're not writing political poetry, if we're not mm -hmm. including the historic, if you know, it's then then our poems that celebrate nature um, aren't doing that much. You know, we need both, yep. you know, we need to celebrate, but we also need to really look hard at 
our histories and um, and what's happening now as a result of those histories and and systems that we live in. Well, you sent me some poems, and actually among them you sent a poem that's in the book. Why right. don't we do that one now while we're with the book, and then we'll move over to some of your poems. That sounds great. Thanks. So um, one of the poems I sent to you is June Jordan, and um, she's one of the elders in the book. Um, you know, another thing I like to stress is that eco-justice poetry is not new. Um, people have been writing these poems for generations uh, in every culture. It's just not been in our lens, in our you know Western tradition, canon, uh, yeah. and so on. And one of those poets um, who I think is really important uh, in the book is June Jordan, African American poet. Um, and this poem is from the food justice section of the book. And I've loved this poem for a long time. Focus in real time, June Jordan. A bowl of rice, as food, as politics or metaphor, as something valuable and good or something common to consume, exploit, ignore. Who grew these grains? Who owned the land? Who harvested the crop? Who converted these soft particles to money? Who kept the cash? Who shipped the consequences of the cash? Who else was going to eat the rice? Who else was going to convert the rice to cash? Who would design the flowers for the outside of the bowl? Who would hold the bowl between her hands? Who would give the bowl away? Who could share the rice? Who could fill that bowl with rice? How many times a day? How many times a week? Who would adore the hands that held the bowl, that held the rice? Who would adore the look, the smell, the steam of boiled rice in a bowl? Who will analyze the cash the rice becomes? Who will sit beside the bowl or fight for the rice? Who will write about the hands that held the bowl? Who will want to own the land? A bowl of rice. June Jordan. That's a lovely thing the poets do. Take something and then blow out the implications of it. You know, right. all directions. All of the yeah. connections. Yeah, it certainly is that way. Yeah, I really like this poem because it um, connects us to eco-justice in a very quick way. We see the international connections, you know, the connections between us and the food we eat and these entire enormous systems that we're mm -hmm. part of. Um, and where we're standing and, uh, you know, the simplest things that connect us. I think a whole important basic element of this uh, area of thought is to me systems theory. It's right. all a system and every little piece is connected to every other little piece. Right. If you, if you change one piece, everything else gets altered just a little bit. Right. And we can't, for example, solve climate change if we don't look at the system that created it. 
You know, mm -hmm. we have to look at, you know, systems of uh, economic oppression and racism and um, sexism and all the other things yeah. that are dividing us and breaking us down. Um, capitalism, don't want to forget to mention. Um, and, uh, you know, we really have to consider what, how did we get to this point where we're being given 12 years or something before, you know, I just today read the most terrible news about polar bears mm. who are coming into this Russian town because they've lost their habitat to climate and, you know, mm. the disasters every day that we're, we're facing, well, how do we get here? We're not going to solve these problems with simply with technology. We need those technologies, but we also really need to change our culture. Yeah, yeah. Is your, is your forthcoming book, let's say the, the collection you're working on, is that deal with this arena or is it? It does. Called? Yeah, so the book I'm um, working on is called Night House. And I did a lot of the writing while I was working on the anthology. So um, these issues were a lot on my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and they have been for a long time. Um, and, and I think that working on this book, I also, Ghost Fishing is a very multicultural book. And mm. um, it really also led me to think about my own culture and, and you know, what those connections are for me and personally. And, and so a lot of that is in poems that I'm writing. Oh. Well, why don't, why don't we hear a poem from the uh, forthcoming? Sure, that'd be great. Excuse my papers flashing. Uh, um, this poem is called Vanities. And it is, uh, has an epigraph from Mahmoud Darvish from 11 Planets, vanity, vanity of vanities. Everything on the earth is vanishing. Vanities. We eat of food and its unseen worlds, biota for the body, microbes for the brain, the body as host, the body as a life-giving universe. I inhale Cleopatra. You exhale California drought. Strawberries, almonds, kale. We push our shopping carts through microclimates of disbelief. Allow the cashier to appropriate our debt. I want the reddest, baddest, sweetest pepper, the one from stolen land and water. You want the foregone conclusion, the whipped and uncertain cream. Carbon creates life. Oxygen creates minerals. The dead creates carbon. Here we are praising individuality when what the soul craves is connection. Angels lonely for the body to inhabit. She puts her hand on your knee and the world goes black. He rests his head on your lap and you both dream of summer. Beyond this fragile orbit, beyond this infinite blue, darkness is the creator of stars. How did we find one another? 
I like to ask, where did that poem come from or how did it start? Yeah. Huh. Or do you well, I was reading, <laughs> Yeah, I was reading Mahmoud Darwish and um, I was in these very enormous poems of his and um, it just sort of put my mind in this very spacious place. Mm. And, and then I started writing, um, but I was also reading about microbes <laughs> and thinking about food and the gut and, mm. you know, all these things that were on my mind. Um, and, you know, and it's just started with the first line, I think a lot of my poems start with a line and then mm. then another line and then another comes. And um, I feel like this one is a more spacious poem of poems that I've written. And, uh, and that, 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 you know, often what we're reading influences right. how we're writing. Yeah. That's 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 it's always, it's always interesting to figure out where where did a poem come from did it start in the middle or one like a line that was really appealing or a concept or could have been walking down the grocery store aisle right <laughs> it, it wasn't but it could have been is what i'm saying right and i think this poem came just line by line not just sit down right at all at once but just one line and then hmm, what comes after that you know oh. <laughs> and it just kept expanding how we get to the stars yeah all right let's hear another so i mentioned culture as being on my mind and um i would like to read this poem glacial drift um i've been thinking a lot about uh immigration family heritage how do we get here mm -hmm. you know what we leave behind uh how are we connected and in the 1990s, I had a chance with my sister to go with my grandmother to California, to, from California to um, Switzerland, where her parents were from, mm. and to meet some distant cousins. And um, my grandmother was 82, and um, none of us knew she had dementia when we were and then until we were oh. traveling with her. So it was really uh, interesting experience. Um, jarring and beautiful mm -hmm. and uh, um, full of things. Glacial drift. When she asks about culture, I think of my maternal grandmother, our Swiss relatives waiting for her to lift a spoon so they could eat. And she, oblivious, the American cousin, collared by dementia, her 12 pairs of shoes and instant Swiss cocoa, suitcase full of California oranges, navels, talking. Was her lipstick straight? Did every setting strain to lift fork to face or was it just my impatience? We were odd ducks. In the churchyard of another language, grandma, her hands framing a stranger's face saying, you look like my mother. Or later, locked in the bathroom, unable to get the door open, standing on the toilet, yelling for help, nothing latches the old way. And how she explains in English 
that her German is really Swiss, though she has access to neither. Grandma uses euphemism, fills her purse with packaged jellies, cubes of sugar. When we ask why our ancestors left, she says, for a better life, of course. And who can forgive the blue blaze pouring from these hills of ice, boulders rolled by a drunken god, women with balled up fists for calves, the obedience of stacked wood, the borrowed space of cemeteries. And what was Nebraska but flatness unseen, blown dust in the eyes of God? We swept our paradise and kept it clean. Mm. That is, that is so, the experience is so interesting. I, I just, um, it must have been so surprising. It and was then, and then, Oh, and then, and then living with it and, and figuring right. out what to do and, yeah, what to do. Yeah. And then to just take in the beauty of this place and uh, the awesomeness. We were in the Alps of Switzerland mm. and my sister and I kept looking around saying, why did they leave? You know, and I, and postscript, which demands more writing. I just recently found um, the, the immigration information for my great grandparents. And of course they were there for the Homestead Act. So mm. they're part of that history, um, which also bears examining, um, but gets passed down as for a better life. <laughs> no. Which which but, is yeah pretty vague. Yeah. Oh, or yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Doesn't uh, express the uniqueness of the experience. Right. That's, like, that's what it is. Yeah. A lot of ways to have a better life. Right, and 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 to think about how landscape shapes you, and you know what it must be like to have roots that old in a place. Yeah. And to think about my great great grandparents coming from the Alps to flat Nebraska, you mm. know, what a change. So true. Yeah. From the Alps to Nebraska. Yeah. That's, that's pretty dramatic. We uh, might have time. We have time for Requiem. I think that's probably about time to do that. <laughs> okay. Requiem. Unable to sleep, the blankets wrapped in waves, waves as tall as dreams the dream world trying to make sense of the waking. Strange dream of flooded rivers, entire cities underwater. Look how the dead float, hair blossoming on the surface and the daily hustle into streets filled with water, going to get bread, going to get gasoline and the dogs tied to lampposts and the elders in chest-high water waiting for rescue. And always the water rising. And we never know who it will take next, except that some houses are more sturdy than others, and some rescues come quicker or not at all. Remember when our beds were filled with oil, 
The sea was whispering from an open door as that viscous dark came spilling up and out and into every crevice of our dreams. How many days it gushed all over our newspapers, into our laundry and hair, how it covered our hands and wouldn't wash out. We couldn't sleep at night. And the president ate shrimp and said none of this, though tragic, should interrupt our dinner. We who crawled once to these shores, having risen, from single cells on the ocean floor, now standing in the midst of an invented world. Each morning, we step into our clothes, light the stove for breakfast, and those of us with privilege, we gas up and go. We who once had no claws, no hands, no way of grasping what we desired, and the waters keep seeping back in. Look how carefully zookeepers pack up those dolphins, airlifting them to safety, massages to ease the stress. After the flooding, the houses so weak they are crumbling, and before the flooding also. Elsewhere, drought brings flame, fires consuming the west coast of our country, easy breathing only when the wind is blowing the other direction, firefighters fighting to protect the houses as animals come screaming from the flames. Mm. Give them water, foresters beg, let them recover. Give me a dog who isn't drowning, a tree not in flames, a flag that is not betrayal. Teach me how to build an ark. Oh, I love that poem. Thanks. <laughs> I love that poem, yeah. Thank you. Gave me visions of Katrina. I don't know what its specific yeah. impetus was, but... That kind of idea and the, uh, as you're saying, you know, the impact of social class on rescue is yeah. just pretty terrifying. Yeah. And terrible. Yeah, definitely terrible. Yeah. Um, I wrote this for uh, a collaborative concert um, and I was asked to write a poem uh, that was with um, some musicians at the National Gallery of Arts. Mm. And I was asked to write a poem about oceans. And I was writing it at the same time as um, all of those disasters were happening two years ago, which keep happening during hurricane season. So that was the ocean. Yeah. Um, do you wanna, wanna say a few words about, about Split This Rock? Yeah, Split This Rock is wonderful. And if, you, if uh, listeners haven't been able to attend yet, I strongly advise that you um, get uh, Split This Rock on your calendar for uh, 2020. The next um, festival is probably in April. We're pinning down the um, dates now. But Split This Rock is um, 
one of the you know first only national organizations founded to lift up socially engaged poetry and activists and poets um, who are finding language um, to speak into the many issues that that poets care about, which, which are a lot um, around issues of social justice. And uh, poets come from around the country to Washington, D.C. And we have featured readers who read in the evenings, um, always an amazing cast of some of the best poets who are writing today and uh, a community of poets um, who gather and we have panels and workshops and all kinds of ways for poets uh, coming in from out of town to connect to one another and uh, be a part of community. And um, we were founded 10 years ago. So the festival happens every two years. Um, the Split This Rock also publishes a poem a week online and people can seek that out. Um, we now have a database that's searchable by theme. So if you're working on an issue and you wanna find poems about um, eco-justice, there's an, you can do an eco-justice search, you can do a veteran search, you can do, uh, economic justice search, uh, whatever mm. your topic is that you're interested in, you can find poems there and uh, from a very culturally diverse um, and beautiful collection of poetry. Um, so Split This Rock is, is a great way to build community and share resources and keep one another lifted up um, through these difficult years that we are living through. Um, I often think of Split This Rock as uh, extended family. You know, we go to other poetry events sometimes to promote our work or, you know, connect around work or all kinds of reasons to go. But, but Split This Rock Poetry Festival is a place really uh, for family for this extended family of poets who care about uh, um, social justice and, and all of, you know, we care about our communities, we're active in our communities. Um, it's a great group of people. Maybe all poets are this wonderful, um, probably pretty close, but Split This Rock is, is a very uh, intimate um, and special community. Is the website is splitthisrock.org? That's right. That correct? Okay. So that's where you can find out about the poem of the week and, and other things that happen. They do a poetry contest. And uh, from there, of course, is the avenue to get into this wonderful database of poems that have been put together. And you also, if you sign up for the mailing list there, you'll get that poem of the week from them. And you also will find out about you know, when they're putting out a call for panel proposals for the festival. So um, you don't want to miss that if you want to, if you have a project that you'd like to share with other poets. Great. Right. Uh, Melissa, this has been wonderful. Thank Both you. The poetry and the other information and the uh, issues inspired inspiration. Thank you so much. And this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today, Melissa Tucky.
from upstate New York. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. We have been visiting with Melissa Tucky, who is the Poet Laureate for Tompkins County in upstate New York and a co founder of the wonderful organization Split This Rock. And now, sticking with the idea of social issues and literature, I'd like to take a look at an essay by George Orwell. It was published in a book called Shooting an Elephant and Other Essays. Copyright 1947. Yes, it's old, but it is still extremely relevant today. The essay is called Politics and the English Language. And Orwell's main point is that there is an intrinsic relationship between how we think, how we write, how we talk, and our political discourse. They're all intertwined. Here's a basic statement from this. I'm going to be reading brief things from the essay. And you can go back and get more detail by finding this essay. An effect can become a cause. Reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure. And then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It's rather the same thing that's happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. The point is, the process is reversible. Modern English, especially written English, is full of bad habits which spread by imitation and which can be avoided if one is willing to take the necessary trouble. If one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly and to think clearly is a necessary first step toward political regeneration, so that the fight against bad English is not frivolous and is not the exclusive concern of professional writers. It goes on to make points about how vagueness and intentional obfuscation, of course, are the enemy of, of, of the kind of political discourse we'd like to have. And uh, after going over a few details of mistakes people make and how they're vague, he has some rules that will help you if you'd like to take care of this or work against this. And is when I saw this list, I knew I just had to present them to you. I think you'll appreciate it. Here you go. Never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech which you're used to seeing in print. He's really irritated by cliches, and so don't ever be cliched. Two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Again, his point is the maximum clarity and reaching the maximum audience. Three, poets can relate to this. If it's possible to cut out a word, always cut it out. Four, all of our teachers told us this, never use the passive when you can use the active. Five, never use a foreign phrase or scientific word or jargon word 
if you can come up with an everyday English equivalent. And finally, this one's a little hard to interpret. Break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. He doesn't really elaborate on barbarous. I'll leave you to figure that out. And if you decide to look at this essay and uh, go into more depth with it, as he says, these things sound rather elementary. And he is talking about uh, clarity. He's talking more rhetoric than poetic, I'd say. So uh, not the literary use of language, but language is an instrument for expressing and not concealing or preventing thought. So, some thoughts for you from George Orwell, who certainly spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. And you're going to hear my pages turn as I go back to the title. It's called Politics and the English Language. It's in the book called Shooting an Elephant and Other Essays by George Orwell, copyright 1947. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. Please join us again next time and let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Monley. And remember... Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.